Hello, and welcome to Unscripted, Conversations About Sexual and Domestic Violence, a podcast featuring employees and subject matter experts from domestic and sexual violence services and partner organizations discussing all aspects of interpersonal violence, plus solutions and resources for support for residents of Fairfax County. I'm your host, Kendra Lee. On this edition of Unscripted, I'm talking with Abby Picard, Human Trafficking and Sexual Violence Coordinator in Domestic and Sexual Violence Services, and Katie Flannery, Immigration Supervising Attorney at IUDA, and we'll be talking about the intersection of human trafficking with domestic violence, sexual violence, child abuse, financial exploitation, and within immigrant communities. Abby, Katie, welcome to Unscripted, and thanks for being on the podcast today. Thanks for having us. Contrary to popular belief, human trafficking, which is the use of force, fraud, or coercion to compel a person into commercial acts, sex acts, or labor against their will, doesn't happen in a vacuum. And it doesn't look like what we've seen on popular television series and movies about this topic either. So it's the result of inequities in our society and economic systems that make people vulnerable to traffickers. To understand how to reduce trafficking on the massive scale of the problem and to help survivors better, we must increase supports and services for those vulnerable people and change the conditions, family violence, poverty, homelessness, discrimination, to name a few, that expose people to the lure of traffickers. So I'm going to kick this conversation off by having y'all talk about some of the basics. Who are traffickers? It's not the girl kidnapped in the mall parking lot like we've been led to believe, right? Yeah, thank you, Kendra. And thanks for having us here. Like I said, um, I think what you said is exactly correct, right? So it intersects with these other forms of violence. So folks who are most vulnerable to trafficking are folks who are already um, exposed to other forms of violence, whether that's abuse as a child and they're experiencing trafficking later in their life, or someone who's in a relationship that's unhealthy or abusive for them. Um, trafficking is something that is not just out of the blue most of the time, right? It's folks who are in need of the things of value uh, that someone gets from trafficking. So whether that's a place to stay one night because you're homeless, you're not able to access housing, or whether that is someone who is experiencing substance dependence and they need a way that they're able to get the substances they need. So trafficking is something that can impact anyone, but most often it's impacting folks who already have things going on in their lives that can make them open to exploitation. One thing... Um when I do presentations on human trafficking with folks, um, I think human trafficking can sound scary um, mm-hmm. for service providers. But one thing that I often stress is that folks are already seeing human trafficking survivors. They just don't know it um, because human trafficking does so often overlap with um, other forms of victimization, like you said, and is a result of many of the same forms of systematic vulnerabilities um, that can give rise to financial exploitation, domestic and sexual violence. I This is far outside of Fairfax County. I used to work um, for the UN on refugee issues in Egypt. Um, and before that, I was working with a nonprofit there. And when I came back to the States and started working with Ayuda and really got to understand the definition of human trafficking, I thought back to who the most vulnerable people were that I had encountered when I was in Egypt. And I realized every single one of them had been a victim of human trafficking. And I had not encountered them in that way or thought about it in that way. But they were right in front of me. And I think the same thing is true here and in the communities who are subject to human trafficking in Fairfax County and throughout Northern Virginia. 
I'm glad you brought this up. What does it look like to bystanders? So what would I see or what am I seeing or what have I seen that is trafficking? I just didn't know it. What does it look like to lay people? You might not see anything. Um, okay. I, I think I personally, so I work with immigrant communities. Um, of course, there is trafficking that you can identify and, um, and maybe we can talk about that. But the, the majority of my trafficking clients, and especially where there is overlap with domestic violence, it's happening inside people's homes and it's happening within families. And so it, there may not be external red flags that, that someone can pick up or it may not, the person might very rarely leave their home. I mean, that's part of what it can be difficult about getting out of a situation. Isolation is a very common tactic. And sometimes that's physical isolation, meaning people are in their homes with their families. Um, and, and so that's not, you know, a super, super, um, actionable answer. <laughs> what mm-hmm. does it look like? What are the red flags? But I think, I think in reality, it's important to remember that you might not see anything. You might not notice anything out of the ordinary. And I'll build off of that. I think one of the major misconceptions about trafficking is that it's something that comes from a stranger, right? That someone is, some outside force comes into a person's life and makes it so they're unsafe. But like Katie said, I think one thing that's really important to stress is that it is often an intimate partner or a family member or someone that a person knows. It's happening in their family. It's happening with a relationship that they're in. And so um, on sort of the flip side of that, like Katie said, maybe you don't see anything, but maybe you're actually seeing it all the time and you just don't realize that that's what's happening, right? So um, totally agree with everything. And also, you know, one of the most important things that you can do is whether or not you think a situation sort of counts as a trafficking situation, you know, we're all able to provide support to people experiencing violence. And I know that that's a topic that's come up on this podcast before in different subject areas, but you don't have to know for a fact, like, oh, this fits the definition of trafficking, or this fits the definition of domestic violence. If someone in your life is experiencing harm or violence by another person, or you're just concerned about them, um, being a good friend and being a good family member and, you know, being supportive of the people that you care about um, is one of the most important things that you can do. So it's okay if you don't identify it. Like, these are the signs, right? Um, if you see signs that someone is in need of your help, um, you can engage with them just like you would, even if you don't know that it's specifically trafficking. Okay. Makes sense. What does trafficking in Fairfax County look like? And I'm not asking like, you know, does it look different in Fairfax than it looks elsewhere, but are the numbers really high in Fairfax? Do we know? Do we have a grasp on any of this? Yeah. So numbers are incredibly difficult to get around trafficking issues generally. This is broadly true on a national scale, on an international scale. And a huge part of that is like Katie was saying, we don't always identify it as trafficking, right? Mm -hmm. So um, that's part of why it can be tricky. Um, Another thing that's important to know is that most people who are experiencing trafficking, they also don't identify themselves as victims of trafficking. And so um, we're often engaging with folks who are in need of some sort of other service. Um, and that are identified is often how we get a lot of clients who we say are sort of a human trafficking clients. It's very rare for someone to identify themselves in that way. Um, and so the numbers, numbers is a hard question anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but Katie, did you have something to share? Well, yes. Yeah, so the other thing, and Abby, you and I have had this conversation before, actually. Um, in most contexts, 
actually naming an experience as human trafficking doesn't matter. So like Abby was saying, you might come across someone who is a survivor of human trafficking, but they are being served in a domestic violence context and they're going to get the services that they need as a domestic violence survivor. And it doesn't matter that much to, to label it. I am in a little bit of a unique situation as an immigration attorney because um, there is one specific type of immigration remedy, a type of legal status that immigrants can apply for and, and can get to regularize their status if they are victims of human trafficking. And so I go around and sort of dig through people's experiences and find what I can call, what I can put the definition onto and call it human trafficking. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I'm working with partners throughout the county and when we're getting referrals, we're often getting referrals from non-human trafficking specific sources. Um, in terms of numbers, so I, I will say one population that we work with a lot and we do have some numbers is um, unaccompanied immigrant children. So Fairfax County has one of the largest populations of unaccompanied immigrant children in the country. Um, I I think we're top 10 pretty much every year. And what that means is someone who was under the age of 18 who crossed the border or otherwise entered the United States without a caretaker or like a parent or legal guardian. And they are processed through um, the Department of Health and Human Resources. And ultimately, the goal is to release them into the care of an adult who has been vetted in the United States. And perhaps unsurprisingly, that vetting system is not perfect, especially Mm -hmm. when people are really good at lying. And so one of the things that I see a lot in my clients is those immigrant kids who have gone through this process and been united, reunited with a long absent parent or a family friend or some other relative who then subject that child to human trafficking. Um, so that is, I think, not unique to Fairfax County by any measure, um, but just due to the sheer number of unaccompanied children who are released to sponsors in Fairfax County, that is a large, um, I, I think that's, that's a bigger piece of the human trafficking picture here than perhaps in neighboring counties and in other places in the country. How many? venture into this immigration part, even though I was going to talk about that later, because you said release to sponsors. So mm-hmm. is is the problem that some of these sponsors need to be vetted better? Or what am I hearing? So in an ideal world, everyone would tell the truth all the time. And there would be resources to go and do home visits and background checks, you know, really in-depth background checks on everyone. Mm-hmm. Um there are safeguards put in place. I mean, the the part of Health and Human Services that is deciding whether to release children to these sponsors does background checks. They take fingerprints. They figure. They ask the right questions. Mm-hmm. But people lie, and sometimes people lie convincingly. And you know, in order to have a child released into your care, you have to sign a document promising that you're not going to charge them rent, that you're not going to make them work, that you're going to enroll them in school, that you're going to pay for all of their needs. And if you sign it, and there aren't any other red flags about your situation, you then have that child in your home and you can go back on it. And there's very little that can be done. The The government doesn't have the resources to take kids back into government custody. 
if that sponsor ends up not fulfilling their obligations, it's, you know, similar to the pressures that are on local foster care here, those same pressures exist in federal foster care for immigrant kids. And so, um, you know, there are some unique vulnerabilities in that scenario. The kids are almost by definition undocumented. They are minors. Um, mm-hmm. They have been placed in the care of someone who can, who, you know, there's this very potent threat that I can send you back to immigration. I won't take you to your immigration court if you don't do X, Y, Z. All of those things are false. They're not entitled to do any of those things. Um, mm-hmm. But it's a system that unfortunately, by virtue of those vulnerabilities, lends itself to this type of issue. Now, lots of sponsors are caring, responsible, loving family members, and kids are reunited with their parents and they're thrilled. This is not by any means, there's nothing inherently sort of dangerous or wrong with this system. It's just there are going to be bad actors in a system like this. And this is a population that is uniquely vulnerable to human trafficking for a number of reasons. And so we unfortunately do see that coming up through this system. Okay. Do the strategies that we employ to support immigrants, not children, but adults who are caught up in some sort of trafficking situation, are those strategies to help different for them? than for people who are born in the States? Um, yes and no. I think um, things could be very different and, and very difficult. I think in Fairfax County, um, let, let me back up. <laughs> so one of the biggest concerns, biggest risks um, for undocumented immigrants who are being subjected to or have been subjected to human trafficking is that the the potential risks of having contact with law enforcement are different and potentially higher. So Mm -hmm. one thing I think that we do really well in Fairfax County, and I say we, I can't take any credit for it. I don't work for the government. (laughs) Um, you, You know, the there's a very clear understanding among law enforcement in Fairfax County that undocumented victims are victims. And it is safe, generally speaking, um, for immigrants to come forward with these types of of reports and experiences. I think there's always a language barrier issue. There's always gonna there are always going to be questions of cultural competency and cultural humility whenever you're walk you're working with populations across different cultures. Um, But I think generally speaking, in Northern Virginia and in Fairfax, it is safer here than in many places in the world. Not the world, sorry, the country. <laughs> also the world. <laughs> okay. What's what's the scale of what we're talking about here? <laughs> it's a massive scale. Yeah. <laughs> sorry. Globally. And I'll just add to what Katie said, thinking a little broadly about Fairfax County. You know, one of our greatest strengths in Fairfax County is the level of diversity we have here. And it's also one of the greatest barriers uh, to having everyone in the county have access to services that are accessible to them, culturally relevant to them, you know, have in the language that they speak um, is tricky. And so, you know, we're so lucky to have so many providers who speak languages other than English. And also we speak, uh, you know, when the schools send home information with kids about how many languages are spoken in Fairfax County, it's over 97 languages that are spoken at home. and so. 
you know, having a really diverse community um, is something that really benefits us in so many ways and also means that we want to be really intentional and specific about making sure that we have resources available to folks in many different languages, many different cultural contexts. Um, and that's something that is an issue nationwide. Um, and also something that really comes up in this work because we know that one of the biggest risk factors that we often hear for trafficking generally is some sort of recent move. So whether that is from another country, whether that is just, you know, I lived in Texas and now I live in Virginia, that change in where someone's location is something that we know is a major risk factor. It's in the top five um, for the National Human Trafficking Hotline. So it's also just something that's important to recognize is that, you know, there are so many different facets and barriers to every individual's experience that we're trying to meet and make sure that we can give them the resources that they need. And I don't want this to sound like it's just an immigrant issue. So I'm going to get back on my original track, which is human trafficking is, isn't just one issue. It's this complex intersection between all the forms of interpersonal violence and abuse and exploitation so let's break down what these intersections are and what they look like. Absolutely. So, um, you know, being someone who works within domestic and sexual violence services, um, but has the name of human trafficking and sexual violence coordinator, right? I am always thinking about those intersections. I'm always thinking about how those things come into play with one another. As we said, you know, any sort of uh, trafficking, you know, that the highest rates are with folks that you know. And so, they're interacting with domestic violence, family violence, um, sexual violence, you know, human sex trafficking, um, as it's often referred to, is a form of sexual violence. Um, but also, and I know Katie can speak to this, folks who are being trafficked for their labor in other ways, that also intersects with sexual violence. So, you know, you can't really have trafficking without exploitation, and exploitation directly is going to feed into that narrative of abuse, right? So, you know, when someone is in a situation where they are isolated or reliant on a partner or family member, that's exactly the sort of circumstance that puts them at risk for that financial exploitation. And that financial exploitation is often where something gets that trafficking label. And so it's that the issues intersect. That's certainly true. But also sometimes the issues are so overlapping and intersecting that they're really not separate issues at all. They're just directly the same relationship, the same experience, the same person. But it's just, you know, sort of how we look at that circumstance, whether we'd say that in a trafficking circumstance or a domestic violence circumstance. And so we have to serve folks based on whichever door they come through, like Katie said. Yeah, I think um, m- many, especially in the context of domestic violence, um, I often encounter scenarios, and I, I think this goes to what Abby was just talking about, where the trafficking is the domestic violence and the domestic violence is the trafficking. And there is literally no distinction. It's just which legal definition are you applying? Which lens are you looking at it through? And that has been something over the years that I have sort of started to appreciate more. Um, and it sort of goes back to, I think, um, it doesn't matter what you label it as depending on what kind of service provision you're doing. There are, you know, there is separate funding for human trafficking survivors. And so I think if someone is working with survivors in a position where you can open up additional me- additional forms of support by calling it trafficking, then it's important. Um, but, you know, I think of coercion as being 
the central sort of lever in the human trafficking definition, mm-hmm. um, with one exception, which is children providing commercial sex, whether it is coerced or not, that is still sex trafficking. But outside of that single sort of scenario, all other forms of human trafficking are going to involve coercion. And if you think about sort of the classic power and control wheel in domestic violence, power and control is just another way of talking about coercion. Um, and so the concepts are really very similar. And that's part of why there is so much overlap. Um, you know, family members inherently have certain amounts of power over one another due to emotional ties, which is part of why you see so much trafficking coming up in the family context, because you're sort of starting out with a situation where People have power over one another, sometimes in unequal ways. Unequal. My brain's not working great today. I'm sorry. Um, and, and similarly with financial exploitation, I, I think there's a lot of overlap sometimes even with like federal, the federal definition of blackmail. Um, it all hinges on these sort of nebulous, but in some ways interchangeable ideas of power, control, coercion. Um, and so those, those ways of those interpersonal relationships that involve power and control dynamics are sort of halfway there <laughs> to human trafficking anyway. Yeah, and I'll just add, I do think it's important. I think that a lot of folks have heard of trafficking and, you know, it comes up in the news a lot. It comes up in political discussions. Um, there's, you know, different legislation around trafficking, different conversations around trafficking. And so we often have um, a lot of folks who are really looking for opportunities to learn about trafficking. Um, and one of the things that is sometimes surprising when we go talk to those folks is just how much of it is directly involved in those other forms of abuse, right? And so I think that seeing trafficking as an individual issue is unfortunately pretty tricky because uh, folks are not always expecting or ready to engage with understanding how it's related to domestic violence and sexual violence broadly. Um, and so one of the major things that I think is important to stress is that, you know, because it is so integrated into families and communities and the way that it impacts people is so personal, um, it can be tricky for folks to feel like they don't want to engage or don't want to step into things that are seen as sort of a family matter mm-hmm. in the way that they might want to help somebody if they were, you know, a stranger on the street who they were just concerned about. And so the way that we approach the issue really does depend on whether or not we're seeing it in the context of family relationships. And so I think that's the other major thing that I try to highlight about those intersections is that, you know, our approach has to be different when it's, you know, a friend or family member um, that someone knows and is concerned about. The way that you approach that situation is pretty different than, you know, someone who you see out in public and have never met and have never engaged with. So I think it's important to recognize as well, like the way that we address those issues with community as awareness is also important to think about. Well, that leads me to what I really wanted to discuss right at here at the end is how do you bring survivors to help? And and I use that bringing survivors to help is I know not the correct phrase for it. You guys are going to have to help me out on this because it's not like I'm trying to get you out of a cult and get you deprogrammed. And so I hire somebody to kidnap you back. It's not that. H- how does survivors get help? So I. 
I think the answer to that really depends on what a person, where a person is in their journey. I don't want to say journey. That's so cheesy, but, um, you know, I, many service providers, I'm sure, um, have encountered people who are being trafficked at the same time that they are seeking help. Mm -hmm. And leaving the trafficking situation is not always the person's priority or end goal or possible, Um, especially if someone is financially dependent or if we're talking about it in the context of a relationship and there are children that they, you know, it, it can just get so wrapped up in so many other things. I think the answer And this is a classic lawyer answer. It depends. Um, And I think that the approach to that needs to be led by the person who is seeking help. Now, there's, I think, a separate conversation about how to raise awareness about what services are available and how to get people to take advantage of those services. That's a whole separate conversation and probably not one that I'm particularly qualified to engage in. But I think once you have someone in front of you, in whatever capacity, in, you know, whatever label is, is put on it, people know the risk factors and they know their lives better than anyone who's going to be trying to help them. And, mm-hmm. um, I think trying to decide what help they need or what's going to be best, you know, it might be that it's incredibly dangerous for someone to leave their trafficking situation. But in the meantime, their mental health is really suffering and they just really, really need therapy. Mm-hmm. And that is the limit that that person is drawing in that moment. Um, and then it might be that someone has been, you know, out of their, out from under their traffickers control for five years and is ready for job training or wants to, you know, it, it can look because human trafficking is so many different things and can present in so many different ways in so many different contexts. The needs are going to be different. And I think there is a rescue narrative around human trafficking that doesn't necessarily attach to other types of victimization. And it is, I think, in my experience and in my just philosophy to client work generally pretty important to recognize that rescue is not always what the person is looking for. Rescue is not always what the person needs or even not what is best for the person in that moment. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, helping them to the extent that putting a label on it can make them feel empowered. It can help them understand what's happening. Great. If not, just basic needs assessment and figuring out what are the services that you provide and providing them. Yeah. And I'll add, I know that this is something we talk about often with domestic violence um, and is really relevant here is that giving people opportunities um, and allowing them to make choices is particularly important when someone is in a really dangerous situation. Because like Katie said, they're the one who knows their situation best and they're the one who knows the types of risks that they are experiencing. And so, you know, being a supportive person is one of the most important things, continuing to be a safe person for them to talk to. Um, if you're concerned about someone uh, experiencing violence in their life, whether that's domestic violence um, or human trafficking or any other form of violence, you can express your concern and worries about, you know, feeling like someone maybe isn't a safe person to them. But at the end of the day, they have to be the one to make the decision about what makes sense for them to be safe. Um, and they know that better than anybody who isn't actually 
in their situation. And so maintaining a relationship that's trusting, whether you're doing that as a service provider, um, you know, this is something we talk about with healthcare providers a lot, right? Is if someone's continuing to come back to get the healthcare that they need from you, um, you can build trust and rapport so that if that person is at a point where they do want to seek further help, they know you're a safe person. And so building that relationship as someone who's safe and someone who's not going to tell them what to do because you think they know be- you know better than them, that alone is a way to provide support. Um, and so if that person does decide that they need more formal services for um, their health, for their mental health, for legal services, they know that you're a safe person and you're not someone who is going to you know, dismiss them or tell them that you know better. So but that's one of the biggest things for, you know, getting access to services. Like maybe it won't be today. In fact, it most likely won't be today. Mm-hmm. But maintaining that relationship with someone is going to put them in a better spot um, if they do decide to seek that support than if they don't have anybody in their life who they feel like they can trust in that way. Right. Katie mentioned that raising awareness is part of the solution puzzle that she didn't feel comfortable because that's not her bailiwick, but Abby, it's yours. So can we talk (laughs) some ways that we can raise awareness because most of the research that ordinary folks are going to do on this are going to give them the bad, wrong Hollywood silver screen information, not how you really should raise awareness about this issue. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the major things that I'll speak to is, you know, we have a lot of issues where we have our awareness month once a year, and then we sort of stop talking about it. Um, mm-hmm. So January is Human Trafficking Awareness Month. It is a great opportunity to learn about trafficking and what it actually looks like. Um, but also recognizing that awareness is something that we within domestic and sexual violence services try to do all year round. So mm-hmm. if you're a part of a group in your community, you can request that someone come um, and talk to you about trafficking. It might be someone from uh, DSVS or it might be someone who we work with, like Katie, who's able to come and talk about what trafficking actually looks like um, with your community. So that's a huge thing is dispelling those myths, having an expert come in who can speak to what it looks like rather than just sort of, you know, what we saw on Instagram or Facebook about trafficking. Um, the other major thing um, is continuing to raise awareness about related issues like this whole conversation has been about, right? Um, what does an unhealthy relationship look like? Um, talking to kids and teens about, you know, consent and how important it is for kids to have that bodily autonomy. Um, you know, all of the different ways that we raise awareness around preventing interpersonal violence broadly are relevant to how we talk about awareness around preventing um, and addressing human trafficking. Um, it's, you know, not something that we're going to fix with a bumper sticker. Most issues are not something that we're going <laughs> to fix with a bumper sticker, right? Awareness is is just step one. Um, mm-hmm. Really, the thing that we want to see with awareness long term is, you know, giving people the tools to be able to have a conversation with someone and understand, like we've talked about, you can't save someone, right? It's not about just, I saw this happening. Let me call this phone number. Problem solved, right? Awareness needs to be understanding the complexity of these issues and having as many opportunities as we can to talk to the folks who are going to be those sort of first responders, whether that's a formal first responder, like, uh, a, you know, an EMT or, um, someone who is working in a, you know, the courthouse because someone's come to seek a protective order. 
but also those first responders. Like if a friend or family member comes to you and is experiencing something difficult, you are the first responder. Um, mm-hmm. And we want you to be equipped with all the knowledge that we can so that you know, you know, the DSBS hotline, we will always plug, you know, you don't have to know everything. You can always call us um, at 703-360-7273. Just as a starting point, if you don't know what to do, you can call us yourself or you can call us with that friend or person you're concerned about. Um, awareness is really about how we engage with the people that we love and the folks in our life. Um, and knowing what resources are available. So if that question comes to you about, I feel like I'm in a tr- tough situation. Do you have any idea what I should do? Um, people have options. You guys are a wealth of information and I could talk about this all day, but I know you have lives and jobs. So <laughs> we're going to wrap it up on that note. It's going to do it for this episode of Unscripted Conversations about Sexual and Domestic Violence. Thanks for listening and thanks to Abby and Katie for joining us. If you or someone you know has experienced interpersonal violence, call the Domestic and Sexual Violence 24-Hour Hotline that Abby just mentioned, and that number is 703-360-7273. That's 703-360-7273. Or visit fairfaxcounty.gov and search for Domestic and Sexual Violence. To listen to other county podcasts, visit www.fairfaxcounty.gov slash podcasts. Unscripted Conversations About Sexual and Domestic Violence is produced by the Fairfax County, Virginia government.